Welcome to GovCast, connecting with federal IT's top decision makers. My name is Katherine McPhail, and I am the host for today's episode. Today we are joined by USAID's first ever Chief Digital Development Officer, Chris Burns. Chris also serves as USAID's Director for the Technology Division within the Innovation, Technology, and Research Hub. And in April of 2020, he spearheaded the release of USAID's first ever digital strategy document. Prior to joining USAID, Chris spent nearly 10 years with the Peace Corps, and he has over 25 years of international development experience, primarily in sub-Saharan Africa. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me, Catherine. It's great to be here. So you've been with the USAID for about 12 years. Is that right? Yeah, I'm in my 13th year right now. Oh, amazing. Okay. So how have you seen USAID's digital development programs evolve over that time? Well, to a great extent, actually, I would say it's kind of evolved the same way that digital technology itself has evolved, which of course is incredibly fast moving. Uh, as we well know, you know, prior to me joining, I would say that historically USAID's work on digital technology had a lot to do with trying to bring computers to developing countries where we serve, like in the classroom, um, but also in individual sectoral activities, uh, as well as just working on building out more broadly internet connectivity including helping countries write their national broadband plans. And I think part of the challenge of under that old rubric of uh, ICT for D, uh, Information and Connectivity uh, Communication Technology for Development, is not many people had computers uh, in the developing world. So I really think that my time coming into AID coincided with the rise of mobile phones and the big uh, mobile revolution. And I really saw that as the big game changer. Um, you know, it was right around the time where uh, feature phones were starting to pick up steam uh, in developing countries around the world. The first smartphones were coming online in our own lives. Uh, and we were starting to acknowledge the opportunities in front of us to really be more effective in delivering uh, development and humanitarian assistance. Uh, So when I came on board, uh, we actually uh, had, um, through the GSMA, the uh, Mobile Industry Association, they had identified a considerable uh, mobile phone gender gap uh, in in developing countries around the world and brought the research to us and said, hey, would you like to join us in helping to close that digital divide? So I actually worked on what was the first Global Development Alliance for USAID called the M Women Program to close the gender digital divide. And that was right around the time that uh, mobile money was really coming online for the first time uh, in a lot of countries. Uh, And we saw that as an incredible opportunity to foster financial inclusion, particularly for underserved communities who didn't have access to the more traditional brick and mortar uh, financial institutions. And so through the the early work on mobile money and closing the gender digital divide, we just started to grow from there. Um, You know, we started to focus on uh, the responsible use of real-time data uh, in better decision-making and more adaptive programming uh, in uh, building our strategies. We started to focus more on various sectoral applications of digital, particularly in public health 
but also in education and food security and agricultural productivity. And I think we really grew it to the point where more recently, we started to appreciate and, and understand the real uh, risks that uh, digital technologies pose in today's digital age, both in our personal lives and in our professional lives, and particularly in the field of international development. And that's really what we've captured in our USAID digital strategy that we released in April 2020 was really this recognition of needing to both understand and mitigate uh, the various risks, including the rise of disinformation and misinformation, uh, the rise of digital authoritarianism and repression, and in doing so also maximize the very positive opportunities that we see in, in digital. And so as that's now crescendo, I think probably the most latest focus has been on the rise of artificial intelligence and what that means to international development. And there are a great number of efforts around the world across a lot of partners who are now trying to understand what AI does mean uh, for our business and what it's going to mean moving forward. Uh, I, I would posit that it's going to become an even greater component of what we're doing than it is right now. So that's a little bit of, of the evolution I've seen over these past 13 years. That's a lot. It's really interesting to track the change from like sort of focusing on things like hardware access to like ethical standards. It just seems like so much has happened in the last 12 years. It's really interesting. Yeah, you know, it's it's quite fascinating. You know, our team, uh, if, if we go back to when we first started building it in 2011 was, I think, four and a half people. Uh, and it's ballooned to over 60. That's just the technology division in the Bureau for uh, Development, Democracy, and Innovation in which we sit. But even beyond our core unit, uh, there has been this uh, increase in digital development practitioners across other parts of the agency. And we've even seen um, a growing trend within international development graduate school programs of building digital technology into their curricula. Um, just because it is so important to meeting today's development objectives. We actually just kicked off an engagement earlier this year with CSIS to build up the capacity of grad schools, both around the country, but also around the world, to be more deliberate and holistic in building digital development into their curricula. So I'm excited to see where that heads uh, moving on this year. Absolutely. That'll be very interesting. Let's see, you mentioned that the USAID released its first ever digital strategy in 2020. Can you tell us a little bit about that document and the two strategic objectives that will guide digital strategy at USAID? Sure thing. Yeah, we just celebrated our two-year mark of releasing the strategy. Um, we had a lot of events in last week's Global Digital Development Forum, which spanned uh, two days and had about 3,000 participants from around the world. And, uh, you know, we chose to mark that occasion to really talk about what we've been able to do over the past two years, which has been quite a bit, particularly while we've all been sitting at home uh, under this uh, global pandemic. But yes, the, the strategy itself has two mutually reinforcing objectives. The first one is to improve measurable development and humanitarian assistance outcomes through the responsible use of digital technology in USAID's programming. And the second one is to strengthen the openness 
security and inclusiveness of country digital ecosystems themselves. And we say they're mutually reinforcing because in our minds, you can't really do one without the other. Certainly when we look across all of our sectoral and regional programming, both activities that are already using digital technologies and others that have the opportunity to do so, we know that we need to be more committed and and deliberate and holistic in how we approach that body of work. I used to say that digital development is one of those cross-cutting elements of international development, but I think more so these days, you can almost see it as like an overlay on top of everything we're doing, because I think in order for us to be effective and successful, that it really has to have that, that piece. And it's not just about building apps or building digital technology for the sake of doing it. It's really as an enabler and to ensure that we are offering opportunity uh, for, for communities uh, for whom we work. And I think that's why the responsible bit is so important there. But even beyond our own programming, we also know that when we are working with our partners at a country level, be they national governments or civil society organizations or even the private sector, um, that we have to be focused on what those digital ecosystems themselves look like. And, and we use the words open, inclusive, and secure very, very deliberately, noting that the opposite of that, of course, is uh, closed, uh, insecure, and exclusive. And I think particularly for marginalized and underserved communities who are coming online for the first time, uh, we really have a responsibility to make sure that those ecosystems are set up for, for success. And so within the strategy itself, we put together after uh, iterating for a year plus uh, what we call a digital ecosystem framework. And it has three core pieces to it. One is uh, the digital infrastructure and adoption itself. The second is around this body of what are the digital society rights and governance that need to be put in place uh, for a really uh, sound digital ecosystem. And the third is around the digital economy itself. And there's a lot of sub pieces of that entire framework, but it really underpins our focus in the strategy and the focus of our digital ecosystem country assessments that really establish a set of opportunities and risks that our USAID missions and country and our partners can really respond to. And and that's why we've really tried to capture that up front in the strategy, because we think that if we're achieving those mutually reinforcing objectives, then we're actually really advancing the way we do business uh, as an agency and by extent, uh, the way that the broader international development community does business. I'm curious if you could give us an example of what a digital development program looks like and some of what are the ways that you're achieving these things or looking at strategies for the gender digital divide and those sorts of issues? Oh my gosh. Uh, Yes. A great number of uh, examples. I mean, just about anything that has a deliberate digital component. Um, So you can think about, um, of course, connectivity and infrastructure itself. In Liberia, for example, uh, post Ebola, we partnered with uh, a local uh, affiliate of Google called C-Squared and built a fiber ring around the capital of Monrovia and then hooked up a bunch of line ministries and internet service providers. Uh, you know, it could also extend to using low-cost sensors for greater agricultural uh, production and precision agriculture, since food security is such a big component 
of what USAID works on. Um, let's see, also strengthening health information systems in countries so that frontline health workers can get the information they need uh, in real time and be able to communicate that back to the Ministry of Health and be able to do that first order and second order level of analysis to make best use of the data that they're collecting. Uh, it also includes, for example, uh, ensuring that smallholder farmers can use mobile money uh, services that local mobile network operators are providing uh, so that they can have stronger linkages to markets or build up greater rapport with their input suppliers or whatever they might need to do to be more productive in their own work. Um, closing the gender digital divide certainly is a big component of that. Uh, we have a number of programs, including Women Connect or um, a partnership with Microsoft as well called Airband. It's really um, enabling women's participation in everyday life by changing the ways that uh, women and girls access technology. So it's not just um, providing better services, but even within the technology sector, uh, raising up opportunities. Uh, opportunities for youth as well, um, empowering them and giving them uh, agency and lending them voice uh, through, for example, the use of geospatial visualization. We have a great program called Youth Mappers that taps into the uh, OpenStreetMap uh, software for literally putting their communities on the map and really leveraging the power of geospatial to then influence decision makers on how they spend uh, and allocate the resources at a country level. And then it even goes beyond that, such as strengthening internet freedoms and making sure that uh, journalists and, and those engaging online can do so safely. And I would say lastly, perhaps even more recently, as we think about the continued evolution of digital technology and where it's heading, we very much talk about a 5G world here, but in countries where we work, uh, they're still working on 4G and setting up the opportunities for 5G down the road. And, and part of that conversation is how do we look at 5G alternatives such as open radio access network networks and seeing if they are uh, feasible in a lot of these environments. So we actually have a couple ORAN pilots going on right now in Peru, uh, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, in Southeast Asia, and I suspect uh, more to come. So that gives you a little bit of a flavor of what a digital development program could and does look like. You also mentioned AI earlier, and I'm curious what you think the future of digital development and responsible AI might look like. I wish I could be a soothsayer uh, and, and look into my crystal ball, but I, I do fundamentally believe that you know AI is touching all aspects of our lives, and I don't think that that's any different for the field of international development. Uh, certainly... It's something that we've been trying to understand for a couple of years now. Uh, we've released a number of studies on uh, AI's applicability to international development. And there are a number of efforts that our implementing partners and other partners are doing around the world to understand you know, how to move forward responsibly and ethically. And I think those are two key components of, of this work. We actually just, on Saturday, launched uh, USAID's first ever uh, artificial intelligence action plan that really uh, helps the agency figure out how to ensure that our own use of AI in our programming, so at a country level, is equitable, is inclusive, and is rights-respecting 
Certainly, we see in a number of countries the rise in use of um, facial recognition software, or uh, you know, under often under the auspices of safe cities and smart cities. But we know that when coupled with AI and machine learning, that actually uh, these technologies can be used to to suppress, to uh, surveil, to censor. Uh, and we want to make sure that rather they are being used to drive uh, socioeconomic gains. And we know that even well-intentioned AI can actually exacerbate inequities and, and amplify biases, sometimes based on who is actually developing the AI itself. Uh, you could think about in the context of development, for example, that AI might systematically give lower credit scores to women compared to men, uh, in part because the data input into those models might indicate less available financial data for women. And so, you know, it's, it's unintentional, perhaps, but it actually can amplify existing disparities in financial access. Or if you think about non-dominant minority languages uh, that aren't often well represented in, in digital format, uh, you could, if you have a, a language-based AI tool, it might actually systematically fail and not provide opportunities uh, for those marginalized communities whose languages aren't represented, and, and, and then by extension actually lead to greater disparity in how services are, are allocated, for example. So I think it's really, really important. But even beyond AI itself, just in terms of how we build our digital development programs, we do take into great account uh, this uh, this fundamental belief that we need to be responsible and, and ethical and transparent in how we do it. Um, there are the set of nine principles called the principles for digital development that have been out for about six or seven, maybe even eight years now, that now have over 300 endorsers. These are donors, tech companies, civil society, academia, uh, who have all committed to employing these principles. And they're really basic things like design with the user in mind or ensure that privacy and security is built into any digital investments. But they're really important when taken in totality because it starts to formulate how important uh, it is to make sure that we are being responsible and ethical upfront and then throughout uh, the course of our work. We actually also have a guide on considerations for using data responsibly that uh, our team built a couple years ago and that we deploy to our partners around the world to help uh, remind them, you know, data collection, analysis, dissemination is part and parcel of every single activity that USAID does. Uh, we want to make sure that we're doing it uh, so that the safety and security of end users uh, is top of mind. Absolutely. That's Exciting to hear. I mean, I think it's very clear that AI is going to revolutionize tech and government. So it's wonderful to see this sort of whole of government effort into looking at how it will be used responsibly. Let's see. Earlier, you mentioned sort of digital development, tech recruitment and mentoring the next generation. And I wanted to ask about your own journey. I believe that you started your career on the international development side rather than on the tech side. And I was curious if you could tell us a little bit about your background in international development and what inspired you to specialize in tech. Yes, you have it right. Uh, that's exactly how, how I spent it. I suppose I've always wanted to get into international development, uh, even going back to high school. 
I grew up overseas for a little bit and then got two degrees uh, in that field. So, you know, prior to my time at USAID, I spent almost a decade with the Peace Corps. Uh, and then I was in nonprofit work uh, even before that. But in nonprofit and, and the early parts of Peace Corps, uh, I was focused largely on um, forestry and natural resource management. Uh, and continued that a little bit as a Peace Corps staff member. I was effectively like the deputy country director in uh, Niger from 2006 to 2009. I know that dates me. Um, but during that time, I think we had about 120 Peace Corps volunteers across the country uh, working on agriculture, as I said, natural resource management, education, community development, um, a wide variety of sectors. And a lot of them were doing local radio programs uh, in local languages on various development topics, like how to improve your soil, for example. And they would uh, take analog uh, digital recorders out to the field and have interviews with farmers or community members or women's groups, and then build that into their scripts and deliver those on over uh, local and regional FM radio stations. And it was really neat. They're like, kind of like celebrities when they walked around town after delivering uh, those shows. Really widely popular, of course, radio is still a very uh, important form of ICT uh, around the world. But, it, you know, it struck me that it has its limitations. It's, it's wonderful for broadcasting information. Not so great at figuring out if your information has been received or understood, or in the case of anything that's development rate related, if there's been a behavior change associated with it. And, you know, the time we were there was right around the time where uh, mobile phones were really picking up popularity and, and, and the access was improving. And it was still a 2G world, but a lot more folks could afford mobile phones because they were coming down in cost. And, you know, that was really the moment that struck me that, you know, here we have mobile phones as potentially the great equalizer, where never before through any other form of information communication technology could everyone tap into it and really maximize it to meet their socioeconomic needs. And, you know, that really, I think, was the inspiration that set me off on this course. You know, it's always been at least in development, you know, having the community in mind. How do we as development professionals empower communities and individuals so that they can receive the information, the tools, the services they need to advance their livelihoods and ideally to provide opportunities for greater agency and voice so that they can be the ones who are leading their own development and their own um, livelihood opportunities and I just think that digital technology um, has become such a key component of that, that once I, you know, I was lucky to shortly after join USAID to have the opportunity to build uh, this M-Women program, the first public-private partnership that the agency has had in, in this sector, uh, when, because I came into the Office of uh, Gender Equality and Women's Empowerment uh, when I first joined the agency and really saw you know, a responsibility of us to ensure that those who did not have sufficient access to digital technologies could do so in order to, to advance what they wanted to do in their daily lives. Um, and I, I'm blessed. I, I love what we do. Uh, we have an amazing team. Uh, and I do think that you've seen this fusion 
of international development and, and technology over the years. Absolutely. It's really exciting to speak with you, having worked in this for so many years, to get a, this, this sort of picture of how much has changed and, and how much has evolved. Let's see, my final question is that you have shared before that you're something of an African art aficionado. So now that museums have reopened to the public for in-person visits, what exhibits would you like to see at the Smithsonian National Museum of African Art? What should we all be excited to go and see? Uh, that's a fun question. Um, and certainly not one that anyone has ever asked me before. And great to think about other things other than digital technology, as I would say. Uh, I, I would love to see an exhibit that focuses on uh, both the functional and utilitarian aspects of African art and, and everyday objects. And I believe that the museum did part of that type of exhibit, but it's been, you know, maybe over 20 years uh, since since I covered some of it. And, and you think about, there's a wide variety of uh, functional everyday crafts that come from across the continent. Uh, I would specifically love to see one on wooden stools, given that, you know, not, I guess people probably don't think much about it, but there's so many different styles and meanings and uses that are tied very much to different cultures, to different ceremonies, uh, to different regions based on the materials available. Um, and I like that they can both be for both everyone in everyday life, but also for very specific religious or political ceremonies. And, and, and sometimes only certain persons of stature can sit on a certain type of stool. I have a personal collection of wooden stools, uh, probably over 40. Uh, I'd be willing to lend some of them to the museum for that exhibit. But I think even beyond the actual uh, stools themselves, it would be really, I think, fascinating to couple that with uh, voices and, and videos of stoolmakers themselves sharing stories about their trade, about their history, perhaps why they got into the business, and maybe even challenges that they now face today. Maybe, you know, perhaps it's more challenging to find the resources that they need, or the trade itself might not be lucrative. I'm not entirely sure. Maybe the markets aren't there, uh, but really getting that local voice of, uh, uh, that really, I think, would complete uh, the exhibit of, of being able to see those wooden stools uh, in person as well. So to me, that would be very exciting. Uh, and if the museum wants to talk, uh, I'm here to do so. <laughs> that is so fun. I would love to see that exhibit. I would like to see you curate that exhibit. I really, I like what you said about this, like idea of, you know, function and art. So I hope to see that there. I'll have to <laughs> make sure yeah, we'll have that, to make that someone, happen. someone at the museum hears this. That's amazing. And you know, that is, right? Is Would that technically be a form of technology? Low, I mean, you might call it low tech, but schools, all of that. Oh, absolutely, it would be. Yeah, and yeah, I think you could, and you can fuse the analog uh, with the digital by, you know, coupling these these videos and, and, and voices, kind of like what we're doing right now. Maybe a podcast on uh, wooden stool makers in Africa is, is around the corner. Absolutely. I love that. All right. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to add about digital development, about stools, about anything at all? 
Uh, we could probably go for another couple days on things that I could add. No, this has been great, Catherine. Uh, once again, I really appreciate the opportunity. And, you know, I think it's it's an important topic that I'm blessed to be able to think about and, 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 and do around every single day and, you know, really appreciate the ability to share this with others who might not think daily about the intersection of what we're trying to do in our delivery of uh, development and humanitarian assistance and, and what we can then leverage in our own lives through the tools that we have at our um, hands uh, to do so more effectively and to do so uh, with greater responsibility, right? And, and at the end of the day, we want to make sure that we are good stewards of uh, U.S. taxpayer money. Uh, and I think, you know, this is one of the, the key ways that we can do that uh, in leverage of uh, economies of scale through digital technologies, which are inherently distributive in nature, and in making sure that we are doing it to maximum success. Absolutely. Well, thank you again so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure, and we look forward to chatting with you again. Sounds good. Have a great day. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them in your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at gcio.com. 